This is a Piccolo podcast production. Hi, everyone. In season two, we're not only bringing you the stories from theme park tragedies, we're also bringing you the expert opinions and insights from theme park aficionados. To kick things off, we're joined by journalist John Gregory to discuss the SeaWorld tragedy covered in the last episode. If you haven't listened, go back and do it before diving into this discussion. This episode also covers the repercussions SeaWorld faced, its attempts to rebuild, and the scathing Blackfish documentary. John runs the Theme Park Tribune, which can be found at themeparktribune.com, where he covers all the theme park-related news from around the US. I am your host, Andrew Mensel, and welcome to Fairground Fuckups. John, welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me, Andrew. Now, this episode, we're we're doing a follow-up to this story from last episode about SeaWorld. So it's really great to have you on. And I also want to touch on a bit of how theme parks have been affected by COVID-19 and some of the lasting effects from that. But I I guess before we get into the SeaWorld stuff, can I ask, do you have any affiliation with SeaWorld? Do you have any particular interest in, in SeaWorld? Absolutely no affiliation. I don't have any affiliation with the theme parks I cover. I've never worked for them. Don't accept, you know, comps or anything like that from them. I have visited SeaWorld Park several times. Sometimes that has been as invited media for media events. Other times it's been for uh, as a paying customer. Right. You know, I sort of, I've been immersing myself in all the sort of SeaWorld story and it's a pretty tough story to digest, you know, the way they, they treat the orcas and just the whole thing leaves a sort of nasty taste in my mouth. How do you feel about it? Just generally, before we get into the specifics, I just, you know, what's your overall sort of view of it? I think it's something where opinions have probably changed drastically over you know, the span of my lifetime. It's something that I don't think we would have batted our eyes at in the 80s and 90s. And certainly, you know, I've seen zoos and other sort of animal exhibits and things like that where those animals are are not being treated in the right way or they're not in a habitat that really suits them at all that may have seemed appropriate 20 or 30 years ago and now it just doesn't so i think it's just a, a transformation of what our our societal values are in terms of these sort of animal exhibits to where this this stuff just doesn't seem acceptable to the majority of the general public anymore I feel like you're right. I think, you know, views have changed and doesn't seem like it's it's right to keep these orcas in captivity now. Even, you know, you look back at, you know, the way, you know, baby orcas are caught and then taken to SeaWorld. Even from there, it's sort of, it seems like, unlike a zoo or a somewhere, you know, a wildlife park where it's done for conservation, it seems SeaWorld's kind of only doing it for profit with less care for the welfare of the animals. I mean, they still have pretty robust conservation and animal rescue programs. I think the big sticking point with the animal rights groups is that they simply want them to give up the orcas, move them to seaside sanctuaries, do it faster than the policies that have been implemented in the past few years where they've SeaWorld has pretty much pivoted the, their orca program to extinction, but in you know decades, not right away. 
And that's really the sticking point. And then, you know, you, you can get into broader issues where there's groups that don't want zoos to have captive animals at all. And they will continue to kind of move the bar in, in terms of what they feel is safe and appropriate. And, you know, the general public will do the same, like you said, and like we said previously, societal attitudes change towards these kinds of things over time. I don't think it's an easy um, answer because if you go to SeaWorld, there's no doubt that they do bring awareness to, say, they bring children into the world of um, these animals and they, they bring awareness of these animals to young people and families. And then, you know, you hope that that will in turn lead to adults that are you know, care about the environment and care about these animals. So I think there is some sort of argument there that although these animals are suffering, which is horrible, is the greater good um, being served? I'm not sure, but I think that's certainly an element to it. Right. And, you know, there's always that kind of push and pull when it comes to any sort of zoo or animal exhibit is, you know, these days for the vast majority of them, especially in North America, these are not animals that were taken out of the wild. These were animals born in captivity, raised in captivity, bred in captivity, and in all likelihood couldn't survive in the wild. And then the ones that can, say like manatees, are usually returned to the wild when they are healthy enough. So there is that kind of push and pull where it's not a black and white issue that either these need to exist or not exist. There are other factors to consider and promoting conservation and whether that justifies these uh, enclosures and things like that, that's a reasonable topic of discussion and disagreement, I suppose. Yeah, I think so. So we covered um, in the last episode the, the tragic death of Dawn Brancho, a terrible, terrible incident and followed on from a couple of other deaths in SeaWorld parks. Sort of looking through the history of SeaWorld, do you think that they ignored the warning signs leading up to Dawn's death that, you know, there were plenty of documented incidents where the whales turned on their trainers. Do you think they just ignored the warning signs to keep the, the shows going that are so profitable? Well, I, I wouldn't say, go as far as to say that any theme park operator as a whole would ignore warning signs of safety issues ever for the sake of profit. It's, it's not, have you heard of action park? <laughs> well, <laughs> Let's not, there's, there's a difference between negligent design and, and that, that sort of thing. But, um, you know, it's really not action park aside, I guess. It's certainly not in the theme park's interest to endanger anyone, mm. even if it's entirely for self-serving reasons, avoiding bad publicity that any incident with an employee or a guest, any sort of injury would draw. But pivoting back to SeaWorld, however, it's, impossible really to argue that this wasn't a predictable event. There are documented cases of orcas attacking trainers, not just at SeaWorld, but at other similar aquatic parks that there used to be a lot more of them, frankly, in the 70s and 80s in you know, both the US and Canada. And OSHA said as much in a 2007 report when a SeaWorld San Diego trainer got attacked and almost drowned by an orca. OSHA's exact statement was, you know, swimming with these orcas, that's dangerous. If someone hasn't been killed already, it's only a matter of time before it does happen. Seems kind of prophetic in retrospect. And OSHA later withdrew that report after SeaWorld said it was full of errors. But it's really just impossible to argue that SeaWorld couldn't have seen this coming 
because of all those other incidents, not just at their own parks, but at other parks that had captive orcas. And then in the aftermath of Dawn's tragic death, it, it was like one PR disaster to another. SeaWorld would contend that Dawn Brancho had brought about her own death. You know, they pointed to her ponytail as being something that it might have contributed to the whale turning on her. Just seems like such a callous statement, such a, a callous reaction to uh, one of their own staff members being killed. I mean, it's just awful. It was also kind of their MO up until that point. Was whenever there were trainer accidents, SeaWorld pivoted around and tried to pin it on the trainer as if it was their fault. They did something wrong and without acknowledging the inherent danger that came with with working with these captive orcas, kind of ignoring the fact that if there's some slight, even if there was a slight mistake on the trainer's part that resulted in them, you know, getting pulled down and dragged and, and drowned to their death, like shouldn't that send off some warning signs? But yeah, that was really their MO up until that point in time is pin the blame, pivot the blame, turn it on the trainer. You know, there'd been that the footage of um, in 2006, a male trainer being dragged down and held under for a while, I think by Tilikum as well. So there were the warning signs. That footage is incredible of the the male trainer being held underwater, the fact that it's all on camera. And then you can see the way the trainer's reacting to the animal, trying to calm it down. Just incredible that he was able to survive that. An incredible sort of relationship with the animal. But even there, you can just see how easily an orca can just turn. Right. You can ask other people who work with dangerous animals how quickly one mistake or one little incident can can change everything. Just look at what happened with Siegfried and Roy is kind of another example Mm. I point to. But the very fact that you have to debate, okay, which incident, I have to debate my head, like, which incident are we talking about where, like, someone almost got drowned (laughs) is kind of proof that this was inherently dangerous. And something that goes beyond the other animal rights concerns with some of the shows, say with dolphins, like the dolphins not going to drag these people under and kill them. um, If something happens wrong with the trainer, with the orcas, that's a very real possibility. And the very fact that we have to kind of discuss and remember which incident are we talking about where a trainer almost drowned is kind of proof that this danger was readily present and SeaWorld wasn't doing enough about it. Yeah, definitely. And then I guess from a sort of theme park point of view, has, has SeaWorld ever been able to really recover from this sort of brand damaging PR disaster? I mean, it's obviously a tragedy that underpins it all. Well, it actually had started growing again before the pandemic hit. So for a few years after the Blackfish documentary came out, SeaWorld's attendance, especially at their flagship park in Orlando, declined. And it really, in that Orlando market, which is the most competitive theme park market in the world with Disney and Universal and a Legoland all within an hour of each other. In that market, SeaWorld kind of sunk down from being where that might have been the place that someone going on a Disney World vacation would have spent, always carved out a day to go to SeaWorld for. It kind of downgraded them to a regional park. And ever since then, they've done a lot more focus on let's get in annual pass holders, Florida locals, rely on them for business, and not the much more lucrative like one or two day visitor um, who's there on vacation. But that strategy did work to a point where their attendance started creeping up and I believe it was up for about two straight years before the pandemic hit. And then, you know, all bets are off as to what it will look like 
in the next few years and how quickly they can recover from the pandemic. Because even though their attendance was starting to bounce back, it hadn't you know, erased all the damage that the years of the post-Blackfish declines and the damage to the brand had really done. And even going beyond what their what it was like business-wise, they did seem to be repositioning the brand to de-emphasize that like these orca shows are a core part of their identity. You can just look at the rides they were adding at the three SeaWorld parks in the U.S. in 2020, or at least we're planning to add in 2020, and some of them have now been pushed into 2021. Each of the parks was getting a new roller coaster, and that's really become more of their bread and butter strategy is looking more like a traditional amusement park, theme park, and emphasizing those experiences over the more controversial aquatic experiences that have been you know, core part of their identity since SeaWorld started. Yeah, we have a SeaWorld in Australia, in Queensland on the Gold Coast. And you, you're right, I was there actually two years ago, I think, and they had more rides and they did have a dolphin show and, and things like that. But yeah, you're right. There was more rides there and it was more take the kids there and they can have fun and maybe see a little show as well. So do you think that SeaWorld have been diligent in enacting the changes that they were needed to make when the you know occupational health and safety looked at it after Dawn's death? Do you think they've managed to institute the changes? I think they had to be pushed into it because for a few years after Dawn's death, they were still kind of going by their old playbook. Whenever there was an OSHA ruling, they'd really try to fight it, say it was full of errors. And we're still trying to get trainers back in the water. You know, in, in previous instances where there had ever been a trainer accident with an orca, SeaWorld usually instituted a temporary ban on trainers going in the water with orcas, but then would eventually lift it. What was different after Dawn's death is that OSHA made that judgment themselves and SeaWorld tried to fight it, and they didn't really give up on it until 2014 after Blackfish came out and probably after they could see what effect this was having on their bottom line. So they have gone very far in terms of like you know, ending the orca breeding, changing their orca shows to be not like a circus act anymore. It's not about doing tricks. It's a much more naturalistic sort of uh sort of theme and sort of message focusing on the conservation and how these animals react in the wild and even going further with some of the dolphin shows like trainers i believe this was announced in 2019 or 2020 where trainers would no longer ride on the back of a dolphin which was another sticking point with the animal rights groups so they have taken steps they're not going to be as far as the likes of PETA or other animal rights groups may want and they weren't going into them willingly. It took them several years of the court battles and the same sort of fights that they had before the 2010 death with Tilikum. It still took a lot of that like kind of battling and, and bargaining before they really came around to making substantive changes. Yeah, again, they don't come across that great, do they, John? I mean, it's hard to go, oh, SeaWorld is doing all they can because they're clearly not. I mean, there's reports that in 2019, one of the orcas damaged their dorsal fin and it wasn't reported to authorities for a couple of weeks. Even then, the reason, the injury, perhaps what happened was misreported and they blamed it on other whales when it probably wasn't. It was more to being the way they're kept. And that's only two years ago. So it just seems like all they want is to profit off these animals. Well, they have definitely had big issues with transparency. And I think there was a long internal struggle over how much of this, 
how much of this means we need to redefine who we are as a brand and pivot away from something that's been a core, like I said, a core part of their identity since SeaWorld began. And how much of this are we, you know, how much of this is just a PR thing to get this to blow over? I think it'd be too cynical to argue that saying something like ending the orca breeding program or accepting the fact that trainers cannot go in the water with these orcas anymore are totally like ineffective moves. Like whether they, you know, they obviously took too long to come around to those sort of decisions. They still came around. to that. So I don't think they can be entirely dismissed or jeered for that sort of thing. But the question remains is how far are they willing to go? And when it comes to listening to animal rights experts or this animal experts that you know, are even outside of the PETA and sort of animal rights groups world where you could dismiss them as having some sort of agenda against SeaWorld, how much are they willing to listen to those people in terms of doing right by these animals? Yeah, and you can make a case that there's, there's actually no way of keeping the orcas humanely in captivity. It's just the spaces are too small. It's too far removed from a natural habitat. And unless you're doing it for conservation, hard to justify it. Right. Um, I won't claim to be an expert in orca or weigh in on, you know, can they, what's the most humane way to keep them? I don't see much of an argument for saying that their current situation is the best thing for them and whether seaside sanctuaries is the much better option. But it's it's really hard to justify SeaWorld's current position. Well, then, but just how do you react? I mean, how do you react to it then? Just as a human, as a person that goes, when you hear these stories, when you watch Blackfish, you know, what's your, what's your emotional reaction as someone that goes to these parks to escape and have a good time? Um, you know, do you sort of consider the cost of that? Well, it, it's certainly like it t- if you're if you're the value you see in theme parks is escapism and and not sort of getting getting out of the uh, the daily rigors of everyday life when you're faced with something like that, where you have to consider whether you're being an ethical consumer by supporting that product, certainly that's going to take you out of it. I'm not going to buy into 100% everything Blackfish said. What would give me pause is that there have been trainers who were former trainers at SeaWorld, they're no longer connected to companies, so they don't have some agenda to protect it, That would that have said very publicly that things in Blackfish were either taken out of context, misleadingly presented, interviewed trainers that weren't there for the specific instances that they're covering. And, you know, let's not treat it like it was investigative journalism. It was a documentary with a clear agenda. Not that it should be totally dismissed on that basis. But, you know, it does affect your enjoyment of the parks when you've heard those kind of things and when you just, like, see what the enclosures look like and how large these animals are. And wonder like, well, you know, there's a reason why I don't see an orca at my local zoo <laughs> when they can't fit that in places like this. Yeah, I would feel uneasy ever going to another SeaWorld again. And, you know, it does make me question where you you hear that sort of facts were being tailored to suit their, you know, when they talk about the whales, say, age and 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 the, the dorsal fin uh, collapsing and that being a natural thing and you realize it's not it's because of captivity didn't make me question well what what were they telling me when i took my kids there that, that wasn't right uh you know maybe overemphasizing how much of their mission is really about the conservation i mean it, it can't be dismissed that that is part of the reason they exist uh the conservation efforts the animal rescue programs but at the end of the day they are a for-profit publicly traded company 
And so they are going to have their own interests at heart in the end. So take that with a grain of salt. It's not like there's some, uh, you know, there's some small nonprofit with just a goodwill mission. And what, what do you sort of say the future of SeaWorld? You know, what, do you go to it? Will you go to it again? What do you think of it? What's, what's the, the plan going forward? Well, I will still go to it and I, if only for the sake of like covering it because I'm not there to make, yep. make the ethical judgment that, no, I'm not going to cover cover this sort of place. And I would see them continuing to de-emphasize the aquatic experiences and pivot more towards than just more amusement park rides, more attractions. The last big thing they opened in Orlando, which I attended the immediate event for, was their Sesame Street land, uh, which was honestly you know, the, the section that was themed after the Sesame Street buildings is one of the best themed areas I've ever seen outside of a non-Disney or Universal park. And I would, ex- I would expect that's where they keep going because that's just so much safer. Okay, There's so much less controversy there and something they can really pivot the brand to. I think the delicate balance that they're going to have to strike is that core part of their identity, the orca shows and all these aquatic experiences. It's not so easy to just you know, push that under the rug after you know, relying on it for 40 or 50 years. And there's fans who are very, very attached to those sort of experiences. And without that, they're not going to see as great of an appeal with SeaWorld. So it's going to be this delicate balance between trying to pivot away from the parts of their brand that have been poisoned by Blackfish and and all the controversies with the whales and trying to not reinvent themselves too much to the point where those old experiences that a good segment of their fan base will still enjoy and are still dedicated to um, not abandoning those entirely because they would be frankly pissing off a good chunk of their fans if they didn't. So they're turning away from whales towards big bird. (laughs) Well, I mean, they've, they've been involved with the Sesame street, the Sesame workshop characters for, for a long time, including the Sesame place um, theme park. That's part of the sea world chain, but is, you know, it doesn't have a, whale in sight um so <laughs> there were no whales in sesame street if i if i'm thinking back <laughs> correct yes <laughs> so um whether that's going to pay off i don't know as i said they've also had to pivot it pivot to where they've kind of been downgraded from you know this at least in the orlando market from being a a must visit while visiting all these other world-class theme parks to much more of a locals park. They're dependent on food festivals and seasonal events, and there's not as much money in that. So whether that's going to be good for them in the long term you know, remains to be seen, and how much brand cleanup they can do while striking that delicate balance will be something challenging for them in the next day. Yeah, absolutely. I found it it's just been very, very um, troubling going through all that stuff about SeaWorld. We deal on this podcast with sort of you know, various accidents in, in theme parks. And we've done quite a few in America. We did the story of Caitlin Lassiter, who tragically lost her feet in a, in a ride. You know, we, we did the Haunted Castle fire in New Jersey. Um, we've looked at Action Park. We've done some, some local stories. But it does seem like when you, you sort of look at these parks, it's a lot of um, areas of improvement could be like staff training. And it's a, is it right that in America... You know, each state sort of has different regulations around these parks. Absolutely. And even uh, different regions will have, um, it within states will have different regulations based on the size of the parks. Like, for instance, uh, in Orlando, again, 
biggest theme park market in the world, the regulation of the parks, the safety regulation depends on how large the parks are. For very small parks, they actually do get visits from state and county inspectors. But then when you're likes of Disney, Universal, and SeaWorld, they self-inspect. And then all they need to do in order to avoid state inspections is they are required to report on a quarterly basis any guest injury that results in a hospital stay of 24 hours or more. And having looked at those reports every single quarter, they can often undersell what actually happened. One, one, uh, One notable instance was a few years ago on Universal Orlando's ET ride, which is a slow moving dark ride. You're on the bikes from the ET movie. A kid from Brazil got his leg stuck in between the ride vehicle and the exit platform and basically was crushed, like broke several bones in his leg, terrible hospital visit. And all that the that it said in the report, you know, the quarterly injury report was foot pain. <laughs> That's I think a little bit yeah. underselling when someone's like definitely had their had their leg crushed. And the reason we knew more about the actual injury was the family sued Universal. So that's the kind of level of where you know the regulation can differ even within a state. And while, of course, there is that self-serving interest from the theme parks where safety violations and safety instances, guest injuries, employees injuries, all of those are bad for business. But you'll always have to question is how far is that going to take the park in terms of guaranteeing guest safety? Do you think there needs to be like a federal body in, in the U.S. that oversees um, these theme parks rather than leaving it to the states? I don't know if there needs to be a federal body because I think that would result in even more lax enforcement. You know, when there's at the state level, you're probably only going to have a handful of theme parks at best in any given state, Florida being one of the exceptions, California being another exception to that, to where having it at the federal level might might not make sense when there's going to be, you know, there's whole states that don't have parks in, in the U.S. So I think the better solution would probably be more consistent state enforcement, but that requires investments, investment at the state level, making sure this isn't being kind of piled into another department where they're already overworked with other inspections and they're not going to be able to dedicate the time to ins- truly inspecting those parks. And then in states that have multiple theme parks, are they going to invest enough to where there's you know, real dedicated inspections and not just lumping this into another category of business where the regulation is going to be pretty lax. Okay. So do you think states have just got to get better then really at managing them? Right. And that also includes state legislators, you know, insisting on proper enforcement. I mean, in Florida, there's a lot of sweetheart deals for the theme parks there. One of them being, if you're big enough, you can just self-inspect. It's just crazy. And that's a precarious, that is a precarious position that could hide a lot of problems if decide to be negligent and really put profits over people. So it takes a little bit and it also takes some political capital and some political will to to regulate theme parks that would rather not be heavily regulated. So do you think a lot of incidences and accidents are, are swept under the carpet? Well, I've been researching the big incidences and where, you know, young people die. You, you can't sweep those under the carpet. But obviously, you know, you talk about that young boy that's leg was crushed. I mean, is there more of this stuff going on that we just 
never hear about? I don't know if there's ones that are you know, real big because they're not going to be able to cover up a death or a really you know, injury that, that requires a big hospital stay. And then, you know, even when there are lawsuits against the theme parks, you know, some of them can be really ticky tacky things on the part of you know, whoever's suing like, oh, my neck hurt after I got off this ride and I'm suing about it mm. seven years later, that sort of thing. <laughs> so, I mean, it's difficult. It's difficult to say, but I'd be more trusting that it's um, it's not being swept under the rug if you know, the some of the biggest theme parks in the country weren't not just allowed to self-inspect and kind of self-police. Yeah. Disneyland, actually, when you sort of do the research, Six Flags, you know, a lot of them have some harrowing stories, but Disney actually has managed to keep its nose pretty clean. There's, there's not a lot of major incidences at um, Disneyland parks. Uh, yeah. I mean, and th- that, that would be an argument in favor of the, fa- of the kind of self-serving interest to keep safety a priority because it just looks if for no other reason. It just looks bad. You know, Disney has always invested more in maintenance and more in the, even just the appearance of their parks than other chains have than the six flags or certainly, you know, kind of smaller independent amusement parks or boardwalk parks, things like that. And that might be proof of it paying off. There are there are still been safety incidents uh, at Disney parks. Deaths deaths are going to happen at their parks no matter what because you get enough people coming and eventually someone's going to have a heart attack. It happened a few weeks ago at at Epcot that someone just happened to have a heart attack in Epcot. It wasn't mm. because of a ride. But there have also been instances like you know when Big Thunder Mountain Railroad went off the track and you know turned over in a car flipped over on guests and guests died that that has happened at disney parks so they're not immune to it but the fact that it happens less might be might be proof that their approach to making maintenance more of a priority than other parks even if just for the sake of appearances in some cases uh may, might be paying off well, let's hope so what about the effect of COVID-19 on uh, the theme park industry in the US? I, I, I know that pretty soon some of the parks might reopen. Yeah, I mean, it must have been crippling for some of these places. And will some never come back? There really have not been any major ones that closed permanently in the US because of this. Uh, the most it's done is there have been a few parks, smaller parks that have been sold one of the ones is Kentucky Kingdom in Louisville, Kentucky, which had an independent owner. That's where Caitlin Lasseter lost. Her oh feet yes, on the Superman Tower of Power ride. So. Right back back when yeah. it was a Six Flags park. Yeah, um, and that had an independent owner um, who who got the park reopened after it had been shut down for a few years after Six Flags left, and they'll now be operated by Hershen Family Entertainment. They're the same chain that owns Dollywood and Silver Dollar City here. And that's really one of the only instances where there was a change, uh, a long-term change because of COVID. And it's really because in that particular instance, this independent owner just couldn't withstand the financial pressure of being closed, at least not allowed to reopen fully for a full season. Um, And in fact, there were really only a handful of states in the U.S. that didn't allow parks to reopen at all in 2020. Most states did let parks open in some fashion. If not in the summer, then by the end of the year, um, even in my home state of Illinois, our Six Flags Park, Six Flags Great America, wasn't allowed to reopen rides, but they were allowed to reopen for a holiday event that was just you know, a mass required, limited capacity 
kind of just decorated the parks and the park and lights. And that was the event. So for the most part, you know, they were allowed to operate in some form, but really all the big chains were running at a loss. Like they, they opened because it, they lost less while operating, even if they were still losing money, than they would be by being closed because of you know, fixed costs. They're not going to be able to get out of their leases for a year or something like that. Um, and they still have to you know, spend money just to maintain the parks, even if they aren't fully open. So the real impacts were not seen in terms of like any permanent closures, a few sales of parks. I think the real big impact is going to be what's the future investment. Is this going to stall parks from getting that next big ride, that next big coaster for you know, two, three, four years because they're still recovering from it on all the credit they had to take out just to get through just to make sure that their cash burn rate wasn't so high during the pandemic things like that yeah i wonder as well about you know people's changed behaviors because of COVID 19 i mean you can see this in lots of industry cinemas but you know will people actually want to go back to these parks like they did previously if, if the pandemic attendance at the parks are any indication I don't think they have the same people have the same issues with returning to a theme park as they do with returning to a movie theater or even indoor dining. Okay. I think you can probably credit the parks with a lot of that because very few exceptions. They're all instituting rules like absolutely requiring face masks, enforcing physical distancing, limiting capacity to allow for the, for that distancing. That's really made customers feel safe enough to come back on top of the fact that a lot of these parks, especially when you get outside of the Disney's and Universal's, they are almost entirely outdoor environments. I mean, if you go to a Six Flags park, you're unlikely to find even an indoor queue. And that probably brings the comfort level up to people. And then at least from what state public health departments have said, there were no COVID outbreaks tied back to theme parks in the U.S. You can question that somewhat because are they doing the contact tracing necessary to know that's happening? We certainly know that some theme park employees got COVID and it's possible that the, uh, the parks themselves could try to explain that away or as well. You don't know they got it here, even though that's the main, that would be their main source of exposure, but all of those sort of things, the, the restrictions they had in place, the fact that they're outdoor environments and the fact that you could say, at least the public health departments would say that there were no, outbreaks tied back to them it made people seem comfortable enough going to theme parks despite the pandemic especially when you compare it to some other experiences that they clearly aren't comfortable with yet and then the australian reaction to covid19 is very different to america's and because we've taken a you know quite a conservative approach and therefore cases are very low and um we've been able to knock it on the head we've been really lucky so um i think it's funny you know i was reading about Governor Gavin Newsom um, in California, you know, he did, they, they inspected all the parks and, you know, surprisingly they came out going, you know, these theme parks are potentially super spreaders because you've got people queuing together. You've got people coming off the rides together. You've got people eating together. Uh, you've got people in, you know, rides together that, you know, they are very much a recipe for disaster. Well, that's if you think of them in their normal operation. And the, I think that's, that's easy for you know, the, the general public and people who don't go to theme parks that often to have that perception, because it would be true that in a normal environment, a theme park 
would be a super spreader. I mean, I remember the the images of when Disney World was closing for what was you know supposed to be just a few weeks as the pandemic began, and there were pictures of people huddled together around like the Main Street train station. It's like, oh no, get away! Like, <laughs> this is not the time for that. Spread but out. Then, yeah, right, right. But then when they reopened Disney World and Universal a few months later, you saw. I mean, it's very strict mask enforcement very strict social distancing and physical distancing enforcement and very limited capacity. It didn't take a few months for those parks to get up to what was their limited capacity level. So I think the perception of them being super spreaders might be sort of misconstruing or just, just thinking that it's going to be like it was before the pandemic and they're not operating at all. Like it's normal. Okay. So that. Food for thought, if um, any Australians are ever allowed to leave the country, our borders are closed. So we can't even head to California to go to Disneyland. Well, and and, and to be fair, not, most Americans can't head to Disneyland too because one of California's stricter rules is that the attendance for all their theme parks is limited to in-state residents. Oh. So one of the big concerns in California uh, versus Florida who wanted the, I mean, Florida's a tourism economy. They wanted that back as soon as possible. Newsom took a totally different tact and he was very worried about people coming to California. And so one of the big concessions that theme parks, the theme park reopening guidelines in California will be that it's limited to just California residents to discourage people from traveling out of state because you're not going to be able to get into the parks. Yeah, right. Interesting. Now, um, I guess to, to, let's end on a positive note, John, because, you know, we've delved into some negativity. Tell me about what you're excited about for theme parks this year. Any Anything in particular? I, I went to the Star Wars section in California, Disneyland, a couple of years ago. Loved it. Loved the uh, Millennium Falcon ride. What are you excited about this year? When you get to go back, what do you want to go to? Well, besides just getting to go at all, because um, that is obviously a big appeal. I think my biggest thing, my two biggest things would be one um, is the Avengers campus at Disneyland. This will be the first time Disney is building a full Marvel themed land. Wow. Um, it's opening at Disney California Adventure, which is the uh, rightfully the other park at Disney at the Disneyland Resort that needs a big addition. And it's just going to be interesting to see how they bring you know, these hugely popular Marvel marvel movies into a theme park environment and how successful they can be at it the second one would be the iron guazi roller coaster at bush gardens tampa this is uh what's called a hybrid coaster built by rocky mountain construction so it's a wood frame with a steel track on top wow these have become known as like fairly inexpensive because uh they are often built on top of the structures leftover from older wooden roller coasters, but they're just less expensive conversions, but you're getting basically a brand new coaster out of it. And they are very intense. I mean, they're one of the few, you know, these are wooden coasters that will go upside down, have corkscrews, extreme drops, things like that. And the few coasters of this type that have been built in, in America, like Steel Vengeance at Cedar Point, are among the best, widely regarded as among the best coasters in the world. And now they've got one in Bush Gardens, Tampa, where you're just an hour away from the big theme park market in Orlando. So it's exciting to, to think you know, of Florida as a big roller coaster destination, because usually it's not with the dominance of Universal and Disney and their more high tech rides. So 
those are the two things I'm really looking forward to getting to experience in, in 2021 along just with any mm-hmm. theme park, please. <laughs> Maybe 2022, the way things are going. Um, well, well, John, I hope none of those um, rides appear on fairground fuck-ups in the future. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's been a really interesting chat. Oh, thank you for having me. Thanks very much, John, for joining us on Fairground Fuckups. You can see his work at themeparktribune.com. Next episode, we have some more stories to share from the rambunctious Action Park. Go back and listen to Season 1, Episode 4, where we first visited America's most dangerous theme park.